0: Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church, and today I want to take you up the Mount Everest of Bible prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53. And this is a prophecy made about 700 years before Christ, and uh, it's, a, it's one of the most amazing prophecies of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's, If you like, it's the heart of Messianic prophecy. And uh, actually, it doesn't start in Isaiah 53, but you... The chapter division should have been a few verses earlier. It's a poem in five parts, and it starts in Isaiah 52 verse 13. And uh, God starts it by saying, behold my servant. God wants to focus our attention on his servant who is carrying out a special mission for him. And uh, he introduces this character because it 's all about this servant, Of course, in the New Testament, we know that this was fulfilled by Jesus. The theme of the song is the mission that he successfully accomplishes now interestingly, the uh, Israel, uh, in times past, uh, consistently recognized that this could speak of none other than the messiah god 's suffering servant, uh, but more recently. Um, because the Christians kept claiming that this was clearly fulfilled by Jesus, as we're going to see, then uh, it was becoming embarrassing. And so it is now forbidden to be read in the synagogues. And the, the modern interpretation is that the servant is Israel. But as we read, we'll see that this can't be. Because unlike the Israel, this, this servant is sinless and innocent, he, he suffers. Secondly, he suffers for the sins of the world. Um, thirdly, he suffers without complaint. And fourthly, it's an individual who is distinguish, distinguished from Israel as a nation, which is referred to as my people or we or our. Uh, in other words, it certainly isn't Israel. This is the Messiah. And the New Testament clearly identifies him uh, as Jesus. Um, this this is this passage is referred to many times in the New Testament. But let me take you to Acts chapter eight quickly, where we see Philip the evangelist, and he goes to uh, catches up with an Ethiopian riding on a chariot, and it says that Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture which he read was, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth." So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So clearly Isaiah 53, and this is quote he was reading from Isaiah 53, is speaking about Jesus. And that's exactly what I want to do to you. I want to preach Jesus to you today, just as Philip did. And we'll see other passages that refer to Isaiah 53 as fulfilled in Jesus. And that's pretty obvious. Before we look into it, uh, we're going to look just before and just after. We'll look at the context of it, and we'll see that this confirms that this is a prophetic song about the coming Messiah. So before it, in Isaiah 52, we read passages like this in verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Verse 9, for the Lord." comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has made bare his holy arm. And here God is talking in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And here when it's talking about the arm of God doing a mighty work in the earth, and you know, the work of creation, God used his fingers, Psalm 8, It's his handiwork, Psalm 8, and he made the heavens with his fingers. But when it comes to the work of redemption, God had to use his arm because this is his greater work. And so it's talking about the good news is being preached in Psalm 52 about a great work that God has accomplished of salvation. And this good news is preached in the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of, of God. What is this salvation? Uh, You see, and then the song begins in verse 13, explaining the basis for this good news, and it's the sacrifice of the Messiah, the atonement of the Messiah. He accomplished salvation and shalom for all peoples, and therefore the good news is ringing out about this salvation. Then after the song, in Isaiah chapter 54 and 55, is a wonderful description of all the blessings of salvation that have been obtained in this great sacrifice and and released to us freely. Uh, Fruitfulness, deliverance from fear and shame, union with the Lord, marriage with the Lord, redemption from sin, deliverance from the wrath of God, entry into an everlasting covenant of peace, prosperity, uh, being established in Christ's righteousness, it says, their righteous as of me, says the Lord. With authority over the enemy, that's where it says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. and Every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you shall condemn. And then in Isaiah 55, we're invited to come and freely partake of the abundant life that's been made available by the Messiah's sacrifice so that they go forth with joy and peace. And so at the heart of all this, though, is the great sacrifice itself, and let's have a look at it now it's actually a beautifully constructed song it's in five sections each section has three verses each so it's 15 verses altogether and uh, each section focuses on a major theme that's introduced in in the first verse now, the first section we're going to look at is the last three verses of Isaiah 52. And this is like an overview of the whole story, a summary of the story, and then the rest of the poem will, will give it in more detail. And it shows the triumph of the servant. This servant will triumph and succeed in his mission. And that's how it starts. Um, this servant will do God's will perfectly, and this will be proven by his exaltation his threefold exaltation to heaven after fulfilling his ministry. So let's have a look. Isaiah 52, verse 13, God says, Behold, God wants our attention on this man, my servant. He's carrying out God's will. My servant shall prosper. I love that. He will succeed in his mission. Then it says, he shall be exalted that's his resurrection, number one, and be lifted up, that's his ascension, and be very high. He was seated at the right hand of God. And um, it talks about that, his victory, but then it says, first of all though, he must suffer extreme humiliation, and that's the basis of his exaltation. Because the next line in verse 14, it says, he will be lifted very high. And then it says, according as many were appalled at you. And so, although he will be highly exalted, it will be according to how much he has been humiliated. They were he. He suffered so greatly that many will be appalled at the suffering that he had to endure. But because he suffered so much, he will also be highly exalted, greatly. It's just as we read in Philippians about Jesus that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, the most appalling death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. Well, the prophecy then goes on in, in verse 14 to describe his extreme, his terrible, his appalling physical punishment, that his face and his body would be abused more than any other man ever was. And, and we, this was fulfilled by Christ. Let's have a look at that. It says, According as many were appalled at you, his appearance, that's his face, was marred more than any man, and his form, that's his body, more than the sons of men but now we go to the wonderful results of his suffering because in verse 15 it says so through this terrible suffering so shall he sprinkle many nations and this word sprinkle is almost always used of the sprinkling of sacrificial blood on those who receive the blood and so he will sprinkle many nations with his blood and here is indicated that he isn't just dying for Israel he's dying for all the nations Praise God. And so his sufferings will have a sacrificial purpose. His lifeblood will be poured out and be sprinkled, applied to all peoples for their forgiveness and cleansing. So he's going to die as a sacrificial lamb providing atonement for all peoples. Praise God. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And then it goes on to talk about these nations. Not only will they be sprinkled, but they will hear the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, they will be amazed. They will be awed because they've never heard anything like this before. Many Gentiles, and it even says many kings, will believe in God through Messiah's suffering and be saved. And you know, that's been true in church history. There are many, many royal families, many kings around the earth, we know certainly in Europe and many other places that have received the Lord. Praise God. And so, this is in verse 15, it says, the Gentile kings, when they see this sprinkling of the blood, the Gentile kings shall shut their mouths at him. This is astonishment, this is reverence, worship. For what had not been told them shall they see. They'll see it through the eyes of faith, what he's done. And what they had not heard, they shall perceive. And so the surprise thing in Isaiah 53 is that actually his own people Israel as a nation reject him. But it seems that he is accepted by the nations of the earth, that the Messiah, one of the marks of the true Messiah is he will bring the knowledge of God and salvation to the ends of the earth, even while his own people have rejected and of course we know that was fulfilled through Jesus so now we go on to the second section which talks about his great humiliation and his great rejection the first section was the great reversal his great sufferings but then his exaltation the second section from verse 1 to 3 in Isaiah 53 his great humiliation and rejection again by his own people in this section we see the message of Christ and salvation through the blood, goes out. But many or most of Israel do not believe this report this of good news. But those who do believe the report uh, are those who receive salvation. And God applies his salvation to those who believe the report. Let's have a look at this. It says in verse 1, Who has believed our report? This is God's report and to whom is the arm of the lord revealed remember the arm of the lord bringing salvation who is going to see that arm revealed in their life it's the one who believes the report what's the report it's isaiah 53 it's the report that the messiah has come and he has suffered and he has borne our sins and he has shed his blood and if you believe that report praise god then you will see the arm of the lord his salvation revealed in your life that's the good news that Isaiah 52 talked about and so this verse actually implies Israel's initial unbelief who has re- believed our report uh, it says that this says that this is a prophecy that the nation of Israel will not believe new testament uses it that way john 12 Although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has re- believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Romans 10:16. They have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And so this prophesies his rejection by Israel. And as we move on in the prophecy, um, we find out that this rejection happens partly because they didn't expect the messiah to come like this in hum- in humility as a suffering servant they were looking for the messiah to come as the glorious king and yet here is a picture of him dying an a cursed death the death of a executed criminal as it were and so this is one reason why he's rejected and so let's look at the next prophecy in verse 2 it says for why, why is he rejected for? He grew up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He had no stately form or splendor that we should look upon him, nor beauty that we should desire him. What's this saying? They were looking for a, a glorious, magnificent, kingly Messiah. And so when Jesus came along in humility, they did not recognize him. You see... From, notice what it says though, it says he grew up before him. So he would be holy from birth, he would grow up upright uh, into perfect manhood. But notice, as a tender part, plant and as a root out of dry ground. And so this is talking about, although he would grow up strong in himself, it would be at a time of spiritual dryness in the nation. Uh, it, there had been 400 silent years, as it were. There hadn't been any prophets for 400 years. The nation was at a low ebb. The, the royal family was at, a royal, uh, was at a low ebb. So even though Jesus was in the royal family of David, he was born in, in, in simplicity, uh, in a peasant environment. He was, it was dry ground, as it were. And there was nothing unusual about the circumstances of his birth and upbringing you see, just as it was prophesied. So if they're looking for a, for a, for a rich king uh, with great power and glory, they're not going to see the true Messiah who is actually a shoot growing up in, under ordinary circumstances uh, in dry ground. And then it goes on to say he wouldn't have any splendor, stately form, or special, exceptional beauty about him that we would desire him. Now, I certainly believe he, he was good enough looking, but it wasn't like he was kind of had some kind of special uh, radiance and, and, and glory and, uh, and, and special beauty that people would follow him because of his looks. Uh, no, uh, he, he would be a, a man. As it were, not an ordinary man, but you know what I mean, He would look like a normal man because he identified with the human race, and so those who were looking for some godlike uh, uh, glorious uh, conqueror would, would would miss miss this. Um, it says that he would have the appearance of an ordinary man he wouldn 't be dressed as a king or have unusual looks his true glory and his true majesty would be veiled. And and then it goes on to say that he will be despised and rejected by men, suffering great sorrow and grief, not getting the respect he deserved. And we know that this was fulfilled in Christ in his death, and especially in his ministry and and his death, when everyone turned away from him and he bore the full curse of sin. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men. And this was finally fulfilled on the cross. A man of sorrows. This is the word makob, which includes physical pains. And acquainted with grief, which is coli, which is physical disease as well. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So on the cross, we know that these pains and these diseases that he had was not his own, but what on the cross, we'll find out in the next verse, that he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. And people hid his, hid their face from him because of the, 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 the total suffering that he faced on the cross. And it's showing his humiliation for us. And so if they were looking for a conquering Messiah, and what they saw is Jesus crucified on the cross in apparent weakness, that's the reason why they didn't believe. Well... The next section talks about his substitution, the great replacement. This is the central section of the prophecy. It is the heart of what he was doing for us. And And this prophesies that eventually Israel, who rejected him, they'll eventually realize the true purpose of his suffering, that he didn't die for his own sins, but he died for their sins. As a sinless substitute, bearing our sin, bearing our judgment, bearing our curse, so that we might receive peace and restoration in every area of our life. And it predicts that he would not just suffer for our sins, but he would carry our sicknesses and our pains as well in his body to provide healing for us all. Verse 4, it says, surely, I love that, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the word borne here is nasa, he has borne, which means to lift and carry away. Praise God, as to a distance, which is also used for bearing our sins in verse 12. He has borne our griefs, and the word koli is also sicknesses. He's borne our sicknesses. And he's carried, that's the word sabal, to take on himself and bear as a heavy load, which is also used for him bearing, carrying our sins in verse 11. Um, he has carried our sorrows, and that's makob, which is really pains. So He's borne our sicknesses and our pains. And in fact, the Holy Spirit confirmed, this is the true translation, in Matthew 8. It talks about Jesus healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He Himself bore our infirmities and carried our sicknesses. So that's the Holy Spirit translation, confirming He bore our physical sicknesses and pains on the cross. So healing is in the atonement, and therefore it is for all. And that's why Jesus could heal everyone in His ministry. And then it goes on. Yet we did esteem him stricken or killed, smitten of God. In other words, he was—it was God's judgment on him, and afflicted. He was punished for his own sins. And so Israel did not understand why he was killed. They didn't understand he was doing it for them. Well, the next verse says, "But," and this is the revelation. They thought he was a bad man because he suffered so badly but it says he was wounded for our transgressions our acts of disobedience he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities our acts of rebellion the chastisement or the punishment that provides our peace our shalom our complete well-being our forgiveness our wholeness fell on him and with his stripes we were healed or with his bruise healing flows to us and what he is saying is that Jesus took our sicknesses and our pains to provide physical healing for us. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that having died to sins we might live to righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Praise God, it's Jesus. Then it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's the essence of sin. And the Lord has laid, or literally, the Lord has made to meet together on him. This is a violent word, the iniquity of us all. All the sin of all the people in the world was made to meet together on Jesus on the cross and he bore it all for us. Praise God. And it says in Peter, you like sheep were going astray. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so notice the two, the physical in verse 4. Jesus took our physical sicknesses and pains. In verse 5, he took the spiritual, our sins, our transgressions, our iniquity. The next section is his death, the great restraint, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted unfairly afflicted yet he humbled him yet he opened not his mouth he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth this pictures him as the sacrificial lamb of God who laid down his life for us he it predicts he'll be oppressed and afflicted unfairly and yet he'd be silent before his accusers although he's innocent he humbly subjected himself to this unjust treatment and false accusation saying nothing in his defense not making any complaint or curse not calling on God to deliver him but he voluntarily was giving his life up because he was a lamb the Lamb of God being sacrificed for us and then it says from oppression that means prison and judgment that's the trial he was taken away to death and who of his generation considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, that is, he was executed, for the transgressions of my people was he stricken. In other words, he'd be unjustly prisoned uh, and, and convicted and tried and executed, but few people in Israel would understand that the reason that he died was that he would, was dying for the sins of the world, not his own sins. Another reading of verse 8 is, who can speak of his descendants, for he was cut off out of the land of the living. In other words, he would die as a young man, and he wouldn't have any physical children, which is also true. Verse 9, it says, uh, and this is a prophetic paradox here, they made, or they assigned him his grave with the wicked, that's plural, wicked men, but with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. This is a paradox. It says he was with wicked men, but also a a rich man. Notice they planned with Jesus. They killed him as a criminal, and he would have been buried with the criminals. But because he'd done no violence, because he was innocent, God stepped in, and he arranged for his burial to be in a rich man's tomb. And so this prophecy was fulfilled perfectly. Uh, It also talks about his deaths. In other words, he died on every level, spirit, soul, and body. And um, he also says that he was innocent, even though he had done no violence. He had done no wrong actions, and there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no wrong words. And so that is a picture of Christ. And then the final section is the great reward. It says in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. He put him to grief. And this is literally, he made him sick. That's the word coli. He made him sick with our sicknesses. When his soul makes an offering for sin. Again, we see he bears our sin, but he also takes our sickness. It says God was pleased to put our sin on him. How could that be true? It's because this was something that God planned from the foundation of the world, that all our sins would be put on Jesus. He was pleased because of the fruit of that result that we would be brought forth and we would be saved. And this is what it goes on to say. It says that when he has made his offering for sin, he will see his seed though he has no physical children he has many multitudes of spiritual children that are brought forth through the sufferings of his death it says he will prolong his days that means he will rise from the dead and live forever because he's clearly been killed but he will prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand who's the pleasure of the Lord that's us who are his seed who have been redeemed we prosper in his hand praise God it says he will see the result of his travail of his soul and be satisfied. This is a picture like a mother in birth, in heavy labor, and that's what he's doing on the cross, but that she will rejoice in the end He rejoices in the end because he sees the travail of his soul, which is the precious seed, the children of God, that will be born again through his work, and he will be satisfied with that. And then it describes how they become his seed. It says, by his knowledge, literally, by the knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. He will take our sins. And he is the righteous servant, and he gives us his righteousness. And by those who know about him, who believe in him, who trust in him, they are made righteous with his righteousness, and they are justified. Praise God. And so it finishes by saying, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He will divide the spoil with the strong. Because... Now, notice, He will divide the spoils of victory. He defeats the powers of the enemy, and He will be rewarded greatly. And then He divides the rewards with us, with the strong. Why? Because He poured out His soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, uh, including us. And He bore the sin of many, and He made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus did that all on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the spoils of victory, which He divides with us us, which he calls the strong. This was fulfilled by Jesus. We thank God for Jesus, for his wonderful sacrifice, and that he is coming soon as the glorious King.